HRN has a brand new look, but we're sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of food radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today we return to our original podcast format of first-person stories recorded live in front of an audience. As the world begins to dip our collective toes back in gatherings, we are preparing to gather people together once again to share their food stories. We can't wait. Our first story is one of mine. It's part Louisa food origin story and love letter to the restaurant industry with a little bit of warmth from my husband, Michael, who was there when it all began. I am inspired by all that have come before me, and I'm going to tell a little story that is a little bit of my food journey, which is kind of bizarre, um, because I really do like food now. I like it a lot, but it was not always like that for me. I grew up in a house where food was just nothing. I mean, it was okay. Our family was much more about having debates at dinner and current events quizzes and my getting sent away from the table and my sister crying because my brother said something mean. We ate healthy food, I'm sure, but we also had really disgusting food. We had food like jello mold, which I have never understood. Like, why is that a good thing? <laughs> and the other thing that we had that sort of like stands out stark for me is that we sometimes had liver and bacon which is disgusting. I have never knowingly eaten liver in my entire life since my childhood. I would eat the bacon, and I know that that's shocking to you in a Jewish household that we would eat bacon, but we ate bacon quite a lot. But the liver, if you had took the thank you bite and you ate it and you swallowed a lot of ice water right afterwards, you almost didn't taste it, which was pretty good. You know, like you could not have a huge fight with your mother, but you would, a little bit of the liver would be gone. So that was good. Food and love were not entwined for me, and I'm a little jealous of all the people for whom it began at home and their household was a place of wonderful warmth and food. The household I grew up in, the kitchen was about as big as this rug. But then I met a boy. And I'll tell you how I met the boy. I had met another boy first. <laughs> I had met this guy named Harry, and Harry was, among other things, a Serbian folk dance teacher. He taught classes in Balkan folk dancing at MIT. And at that point, I was a student at MIT, and it was January, and they had all these special little classes you could take. And Harry was cool. First of all, he was an older man. He must have been like 23 or 24. <laughs> so he was way cooler than I could ever aspire to be. And he had this thing with his mustache that he would do. He would wax it, and it was sort of turned into little points at the end. You know, cool, very cool. So um, Harry invited me to um, come to one of his Balkan dancing classes at MIT. And 
I will stipulate that I was then and am now a terrible dancer. <laughs> I know conceptually in my mind that the grapevine step is like one foot behind the other behind the, but I can't actually do it. I never did the dance aerobics classes because that's way too much choreography for me. I just can't do that. So anyhow, I went to the Balkan dancing class because Harry and I were going to have like coffee or whatever afterwards. And I didn't know whatever meant, but he was cool. So I'm there, and you know, there are a whole bunch of other people around in this Balkan dancing class. And all of a sudden, this, this boy comes over and asks me to dance. And he is like the cutest boy I have ever seen. He is a six foot tall leprechaun with a big mop of brown hair and a big bushy brown beard. And he was wearing like total 70s chic, which those of you who are a lot young, I'll just explain what that is. He was wearing like a plaid shirt, plaid flannel shirt and a vest and sort of worn jeans with a cool belt buckle, and he had the jeans tucked into his fry boots. This was cool. I know that some of you might not understand that as cool, but let me tell you, my heart sang. And he was adorable. He had these bright blue eyes that just kind of sparkled, and I knew, so not Jewish. So not Jewish. I mean, I grew up in Boston, and I know an Irish boy when I see one, and this was... (laughs) So he asked me to dance, and he kind of like bowed at the waist a little bit, and we danced, and we did the grapevine, sort of. He was a better dancer than I. And then we did another dance, and then we kind of kept dancing, and then the class was over, and his name is Michael, and we walked out, and I had this vague recollection of Harry kind of like (laughs) waving to me. I didn't stop, I just kept going, and... Yeah, that's the last I ever saw of Harry, but later on that afternoon, Michael came to my dorm room and he brought me a single red rose. I mean, come on. It wasn't even, it wasn't even Valentine's Day. It was just adorable. So I was smitten. I'd been a little bit in lust with Harry, but I could have been quite in love with someone who would bring me a red rose and good dance. Yeah, that was pretty much it for the next couple of years, but... Um, You wanted to hear about the food part of it, right? Yeah. So the food part of it was because Mike was, by day, he was an undergraduate physics student and very smart, but also very capable with his hands. And by night, he was building a restaurant. And the restaurant was called Peasant Stock, and he was uh, helping his roommate, Jerry, open this restaurant. And the restaurant was just outside of Harvard Square, and it was meant to be kind of a kind of French bistro. We would probably call it a gastropub now, but we didn't have names like that. It was sort of a French bistro where people who were academics could afford to go, take their date, take their parents. It was going to be quite lovely. What it was at this point was a dump a total dump, and it needed new everything. It needed new plumbing and new floors, and it needed a kitchen, and it needed wiring, and there was this wonderful brick wall, maybe, that had to be completely sandblasted, and we did all of that, and I spent the first months of my relationship with Mike basically covered in sawdust and holding a flashlight where he told me to hold the flashlight or stabilizing the board when he was cutting the board. It was so glamorous. You just can't imagine how glamorous. And we were still in school, but this was kind of glamorous. Finally, the restaurant started looking like a restaurant, but bit by bit, I got really interested in what was going on on the other side of the restaurant, like in the kitchen. Now, 
I had no experience with restaurants growing up. Occasionally, my family would go out to eat, and we would go to like one of those humongous brunches at the Harvard Club or at the, the Somerset Club. We would go, and there would be all you can eat, and there were 20 of us, and people had smoked salmon, and they had prime rib, and I don't know what they had, and there were a lot of desserts. I remember a lot of great gooey desserts. But I had no idea how food got from there in the kitchen to like on people's plates. It just wasn't part of my life. So I decided to watch what Jerry was doing in the kitchen. And he was doing a lot of stuff. You know? He really was. He would like have bags of groceries that he would turn into dishes. And you know, it was just, it was things like broccoli. It was things like, you know, things of meat that ultimately got cooked. And it turned out that he was braising and roasting and filleting and sauteing and all these other things, and it was kind of awesome to me. It was like watching a magic show, which is really the essence of learning how to cook, is learning how to invade that magic show. And I was blown away, and I sort of fell in love with the whole idea that you could take these things, which were really kind of, and I apologize for this, unappealing as raw product, and turn it into these magnificent dishes. So I thought that was just wonderful, and I, felt a little bit like a spy because I would ask Jerry, what, what are you doing? And he would tell me and I would like, oh. You know, it's kind of like, oh, you can make salad dressing, oh no. Or, oh, <laughs> mayonnaise is eggs and oil? Like, who knew that? You know, I, I saw a whisk for the first time in my life and I don't know what I thought it was. I think I originally thought it was maybe some kind of um, sadomasochistic thing. I really just did, didn't know what it was, but I learned and I learned how to use a French knife and not, you know, sacrifice my knuckles. And I learned that you could take an artichoke, which looks like something no one should ever eat, and you could trim it and surgically enhance it so that it was pretty delicious. And I really, I was kind of blown away. The sauces, the vats of rice pilaf, the pans of roasted potatoes, the slow roasted chicken, the, the beef stews, sauerbrot and everything. I just thought that was amazing. And meanwhile, outside, we were starting to come together as uh, waiters and waitresses. Um, this was a time that you weren't servers. You were either a waitress or a waiter. And um, Michael was a terrible waiter. He doesn't remember that. He was really good at the, the wiring and the sandblasting and all of the other stuff. And the tables, he made beautiful tables. Beautiful, beautiful tables. Um, but he was a terrible waiter because he would get lost in conversation <laughs> at every table. So that was a problem because all his other tables would be like over here and he was like they were all going hungry and he really didn't know because he was you know he was very busy he was talking to somebody who maybe he was, was his advisor in one of his classes he could sort of not be dissuaded from the conversation enough to do the job the other problem that we had at the restaurant is that none of us really knew anything about business so we bought everything retail so we went across the street to Savinor's we bought what we needed we brought it back we cooked it there it was not very economical that I kind of knew somewhere that there was, had to be a different way to buy food than go to the grocery store, but we really didn't know. And none of us had ever waited tables. We were all college students. We knew nothing. I mean, I had worked at a soft serve ice cream place in Nantasket Beach growing up, but that didn't really count. It really didn't carry over much. So here we were opening this restaurant with absolutely no idea how to run a restaurant. One of our wonderful things that we had was this uh, cheese table 
We put all these beautiful cheeses out, and we invited the guests to serve themselves. <laughs> now, I see you all laughing because that's ridiculous. <laughs> it took us a while to figure out that our cheese bill was really high. It was higher than anything else we were buying. We probably took a year or two before the, uh, the, the sort of like serve yourself cheese bar went away. Um, I thought about it when, uh, when I lived in another country and they had what they called a Bloomin' self-pick where you could pick however many flowers you want and then put the number of coins in the box. Yeah, right. <laughs> I learned to love the restaurant business. I was fascinated by it. I loved the being a waitress. I think we all love being waiters and waitresses because there was staff meal and sordid romances and exhaustion and skill. It was kind of that, uh, that thing that people talk about when they've been in the army together. We all knew each other's business. We had each other's back. It was just totally wonderful. And it sort of set me off in a career. It took me about more than 20 years to really understand how to make my life and my love and food all come together in a place. And that was by accident. That's another story. It took me 20 years to do that. It took me over 30 years to marry that guy. And I have to tell you that it isn't just that food and love are entwined for me. It's kind of why I wanted to do this event. They're really the same thing. And that's how it is. When we eat, we love. When we cook, we love. When we grow, we love. When I look around the world now, I see food from the sea, food from the orchards, food from the land, people in their kitchens cooking, kids deciding that they want to go and be on the Great British Baking Show. It's just an incredible time to love food. And I thank you all so much for coming tonight. Thank you. Next up will be Celeste Croxton-Tate. She has some great stories to tell about food, family, and her life as a Boston police detective. HRN is excited to unveil the new look of food radio. We have a new brand identity and a new website. Our site makes it easier than ever to discover new podcasts and to dig through our archive of over 15,000 episodes. It's been 11 years since HRN started broadcasting food radio, and we've made it this far thanks to the support of our global listening community. It's because of member donations that this show is on the air, along with 40 other weekly shows. Your contributions gave HRN the security we needed to stay on the airwaves during the pandemic and are allowing us to reopen our studio in Roberta's. Becoming a monthly sustaining member of HRN shows us how much food radio means to you. Become a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Our next story is from Celeste Croxton-Tate of Lindigo Spice. Celeste is a caterer, an incredible cook, a first-time cookbook author, and a Boston police detective. Let's have a listen. Hello, I'm a Roxbury native. I grew up with my parents and two sisters. My dad didn't have a chance in hell in the house because it was all females. And my 
older sister Rachel, we were we were very close. She had the biggest smile and the deepest dimples that anyone could ever see. I used to get on her nerves all the time because she had to bring me everywhere with her. I was a middle child, so anybody who's a middle child, you know, we're special, okay? I remember my dad used to cook all the time. I, I really learned to cook from my father. Don't tell my mother that. But my dad used to cook all the time, and Rachel, she used to detest, like, pork and beans. He, he would do the canned beans, and we couldn't go to McDonald's or anything like that. My father was like, no, I'm making hamburgers. So he would use so much black pepper to the point where we would be coughing, like eating our burgers. So when we were in the kitchen, where Rachel would sit was where we kept our recycle bags. So she would scrape her stuff in a bag and we switch plates and she scraped my stuff in a bag <laughs> but after a while I think we did ourselves a, a disservice by doing that because he kept making them because our plates were clean <laughs> but um, one day on June 6 1983 she didn't come home from work and I was like, okay, well, where is she, you know? And I'm like, okay, well, maybe she went on an adventure without me or something like that. Um, And then we found out a couple of days later that she had been killed. She was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. She was a victim of domestic violence. And um, I just remember my mom just, like, crying every night. And, you know, it was just so sad. I became an introvert, and I just went into my own little shell, And I started reading, like, cookbooks, magazines, watching cooking shows. And I remember every month, Elle magazine would have a recipe card in their magazine. So I think what my mother did for me, she says, I got to help this child and my other sister through this, you know, pain of losing, you know, their older sister. So what she would do was because she saw my interest in cooking, she would get the ingredients, and then I would make that meal on Sundays. So now I'm 14 at the time, okay? So one recipe card was Cornish game hens (laughs) stuffed with wild rice. And I made it, and my mother loved it. So she made me make this every Sunday. I swear it was for like six months. I swear. So, you know, but it helped me. It helped me. I just, I started cooking. I came out of my shell. And where we lived in Roxbury, everybody, it was all different cultures in our building. So I was learning how to make curry, Jamaican curry, Trinidadian curry, just everything. I was in everybody's kitchen, minding everybody else's business. Later on, you know, when I graduated from high school, went on with my life, went to college and started my own family. And the next time I made this meal, I was pregnant and I had a two-year-old as well. And I had the hens in the oven and I had gotten into a heated argument and I ended up getting slapped across the face. And the first thing that flashed in my mind was my mother crying. And I said, my mother cannot lose another child to domestic violence. So I got out of that situation, and I became a police officer. So, of course, it didn't happen anymore. Um, and raised my sons, and um, 
I started my catering company and then my line of chutneys and everything. And I started writing recipes down for my sons. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to do the Cornish game hen recipe for this cookbook. So I did. And I finished my cookbook maybe about a month ago. I'm, <laughs> it was... It was, it was like almost 20 years in the making, but um, I've, I've kind of enhanced it a little bit. I um, added uh, my fennel and fig chutney to go with it. It's just a huge accomplishment for me, and I know that my sister would be very proud of me. And I know every time I cook something, I know that my sister is with me, and I know that she knows I miss her very much. <sighs> oh, boy. I'm just happy to be here tonight, especially in the presence of all these chefs here. I'm like, oh, my God, I was telling my husband. I'm like, I'm really nervous. He was like, you'll be fine. But um, that's my food story. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team producer Rachel Gottbaum, and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 